Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. We're one of your uh, weekly shows talking about all things Trek. We got a variety of topics today, but before we dive into that, I want to introduce your typical weekly host. I'm Gregory Bosco. And guys, we got the whole crew again together for like the third straight week. So, uh, Derek, reintroduce yourself, man. Hey, everybody. This is Derek. I am so excited that we are continuing this with our new format. And I am Jeremy, and I am still slightly confused by our new format. <laughs> What's the confusing part? Just the, like, let's watch a bad one, and then let's watch a good one, and compare, or... We can compare and contrast, you know, whatever works for you. But yeah, so our new format is we are taking the top four rated and the bottom four rated episodes from each season of Star Trek The Original Series based solely on the rating on IMDb. So this is not a subjective thing from the three of us, at least. And so we're starting things off with The City on the Edge of Forever and The Alternative Factor. And you can decide for yourselves which one is the good episode and which one is the bad episode. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're, we're not leaving much up to the imagination, even with the titles alone. <laughs> no, no. But we do have some news. We have tons of Star Trek news from this last week. Yeah, this was a huge week, like the past seven to ten days, because they had the glimpse of the new uniforms and the new director and the two movies. Yeah, this is all over the place. So I guess we'll start. You mentioned the uniforms, so let's start with Discovery News. Um they released a short video basically showing off that production is definitely underway for season two of Star Trek Discovery. And we got to see a glimpse, and I really mean a glimpse, of the Enterprise uniforms. No no opinions? No thoughts? No, I love it because they, they've been saying since they created Discovery that it's part of the Prime timeline. And they opened up with new uniforms, new show, new uniforms, Breath of Fresh Air. But they, they every I mean every week on that trek the after trek they're like this is prime universe this is prime universe, and now if they're starting to kind of mold into the old school uniforms it's it's kind of a smart move on their part. I know from what I saw the the new uniforms looked a lot like the Abrams uniforms. Yes, well they looked a lot like kind of a mixture of the Discovery uniforms and the Kelvin Beyond uniforms. Because there's no pattern in them like the little uh, insignias like we had in the 2009 movie. Um, But what's really interesting about this is that if you take the book Desperate Hours, which is the Discovery novel, there is a line in there that says that the Constitution class starships got this new type of uniform first before all the other ships. So there you go. There's the retcon for why they're going to look different. 
Well, it kind of makes sense because they do want to connect the show to the history of Star Trek. And the uniform changes are pretty, they kind of make sense. And I'm going to use the Star Wars comparison. It's like Kylo Ren's outfit changing every hour or two in the movie. And it makes you think, it's like, is there literally a tailor in the First Order just for Kylo Ren? And these Star Trek these Star Trek changes, they're going to literal kind of uniforms. And it's similar to Abrams, similar. It's like a, it's like a hybrid. Like you said, it makes and it kind of makes sense to me. I like it. Yeah, there's got a lot more detail and kind of the padding with some stitching and things like that to make them look a little more tactical. Um, but you know, if you've seen the video, you know we didn't get a great glimpse. We have the back of who is probably Captain Pike, and then a picture of one of the command uniforms being made by one of the costume makers. Um, and then there's a shot of the insignia on what appears to be an engineer's uniform or a security uniform, which it's the metal insignia that's heavily based on the Kelvin timeline one, that's for sure. Is there also an image of what looks like Burnham going into Spock's quarters? Okay, so this is a weird shot. It, they showed the name of the room number. And for those who know um, Star Trek very well, uh, that is the same room number that Nurse Chapel goes to to see Spock in his quarters. So I guess we're led to believe those are Spock's quarters, but that is a big damn door for crew quarters. Right? I mean, it looked like the door to like a cargo bay. No, that's a good point. And I'm still not 100% convinced. And Jeremy, was it you a couple weeks ago mentioned that they haven't confirmed or dare? It was one of you two. They haven't confirmed that Spock's even going to be seen, like, for real on camera. It's going to be like a flashback. As far as we know, the only Spock that has been officially announced as cast is a young child Spock for flashbacks with Burnham. So, I mean, it would be difficult for them to be on the Enterprise with Pike and not show Spock. I suppose they could say something about him just being off ship, being somewhere else, um, he had, he's on leave for whatever reason. I mean, that happens. It's a little bit of a cop-out, I think. But then again, recasting Spock and making it a character that everyone is happy with would be difficult. Well, I guess if you think about it, if if basically in this timeline the war has just ended, Spock probably is not on leave. So you would think he would be on the Enterprise. That's a good point, too. And, I mean, for those keeping track of time, I don't, I don't think a... Uh, upon far would work quite right because this is nine ten years before the original series and he goes through upon far in uh in a mock time so we know that it, it's got to be some <laughs> something else at this point um so we'll, we'll see i mean maybe they're just keeping it a secret maybe it'll be zachary quinto and all of our minds will just be blown look captain pike i'm sorry i know the federation is crumbling on all fronts but i really have to go back to vulcan it's my time to mate <laughs> and you just you just don't understand sir if i if i don't i might die well that would be super convenient because they're already bringing Sarek to vulcan so it's like hey come on board we're headed that way right right <laughs> well and Derek kind of made the zachary quinto joke but you know he's done a lot of tv he has i mean that's so where he started yeah it's not out of the realm of possibility for them to throw a five second clip in there with a contract and go hey just just do these these five to ten minutes of Star Trek and be Spock, and then we're going to leave you alone. Yeah, I don't think anybody's knocking down Zachary Quinto's door right now to get him to be like a movie star or anything. He's he's had kind of a lull in his career. Well, it does 
raise an interesting question from a, a rights issue. So for those who don't know, CBS owns the television rights to Star Trek and Paramount owns the movie rights after the Viacom split. I don't know if maybe there's a contractual issue with having the same actor play the same character because they haven't had that. The only time that they've had that would have been Leonard Nimoy's Spock, but of course he had played Spock in the movies already. So I don't know if there's maybe an issue of having Quinto play Spock on TV in the new CBS Star Trek. Who knows? That's a good point. I didn't really think about anything like that. The contract, well, we've discussed this in the past few episodes. The the contracts behind and the agreements behind Star Trek are so convoluted, you basically need to be an attorney to understand them. It is complicated. Um, But yeah, so that that was the big stuff from, from that. We know that production is well underway and Jonathan Frakes is involved, as we mentioned, I believe, last week or the week before. So that's Discovery. I don't know. Was there anything else you guys saw in the video worth talking about? I don't think so. Yeah, not for me. Okay. Well, the other piece of news has to do with Paramount and the Star Trek movies. So we got two big pieces of information. The first being from the CEO of Paramount himself announced at CinemaCon that Paramount is not only developing one, but two Star Trek movies. And one of them will be a Kelvin Star Trek IV film following Beyond. The other might be Quentin Tarantino's, which could be completely disconnected. Yeah, and I'm I'm getting a little bit of vibe of what Disney's doing with Star Wars. We got the whole main story, but we're going to do a bunch of side quills as well, which is fine if it's interesting but you know with the star trek 4 because i thought they said most of the cast i mean this is all anecdotal but i know they said a bulk of the cast said they were willing to come back for the kelvin timeline people i don't know what they would do for a a side quill maybe it will be our cardassian storyline that we came up with well the problem with the kelvin cast is that most of them are no longer under contract and you're going to have a hard time getting Zoe Saldana right now because of the Avatar movies. Um, and In Avengers. Well, so we're not going to talk Avengers because I don't want to spoil anything for <laughs> anybody who hasn't seen Infinity War. And this is not a Marvel podcast. But go watch Screen Heroes uh, episode 114 where we review the film if you want to know more about that. Um, but she is doing Avatar 2 and 3 at a minimum. And I know those are supposed to film, I think, back to back. So she's going to be very busy on her own right. Um, not so sure about the rest of the cast and crew. They, they don't do quite as much work, though I believe Chris Pine is supposed to be in some type of flashback or something for Wonder Woman 2, I believe, was the rumor. Well, and he just did A Wrinkle in Time, which is a pretty big, didn't do very well, but it was a big movie. Right, right. But I mean, like, kind of moving forward, he doesn't have any major blockbuster slated. So he's yeah. available. Quinto's available. Carl Urban uh, wants to do it, but he also is trying to get a Judge Dredd TV show happening as well because <laughs> he wants to play Dredd some more, which is fine. You know, that's he, he's good for that too. Uh, so, I mean, they just need to get these people under contract, I think, is the big issue. Yeah, Tarantino's film could be anything. I think the larger problem with a Kelvin Star Trek four is that I, I just don't think there's the interest for it. Like, there was such a drop-off with uh, Beyond. Like, Beyond was a good movie, but they had to have, like, five 
like C-list production companies put it together and it had zero marketing budget and just like, I don't know, it kind of came and went. Well, I think you know, there's there's two different effects that happen when you have sequels. You have the the boost effect like you get with something like Spider-Man 3 or The Dark Knight Returns where the movie before it was outstanding. So everybody goes to see the next one. And then you have yeah. the opposite where a movie maybe is not so great. And so nobody goes for the one following it, even though that might be a superior film. It's <laughs> a <The> darkness. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're not uh, wrong, buddy. You are not wrong. <laughs> So I mean, maybe their hope is the resurgence with interest in Discovery means people will go to the theater and the fact that Beyond was well-received from a critical standpoint. Yeah, well, it was. And Beyond is my favorite of the Abrams film. Well, the Abrams-Kelvin films, excuse me. Because Abrams didn't direct Beyond. But it was, and it was the closest to actually old-school Trek as the movies have gotten in a long time. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, but we do know that this movie will have the franchise's first woman movie director. I do want to preface that a lot of the headlines are just saying straight up first woman director. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Internet, but I'm, I'm fairly certain some uh, some women have uh, directed episodes. But she, uh, S.J. Clarkson, will be the first woman to helm a Star Trek film in franchise history. So it took 14 movies uh, for us to get there, unfortunately, but we got there. Um, for those who don't know S.J. Clarkson, she has done a lot of TV work. She's directed episodes of Jessica Jones and Orange is the New Black, as well as Life on Mars. Um, she's uh, directed a TV miniseries recently called Collateral. Uh, she did a couple episodes of The Defenders. So she's worked on very prominent major stuff with big budgets behind them and a lot of studio pressure. I mean, the MCU is the MCU. So, you know, she's she's worked on some big stuff. So I'm looking forward to, to you know, see what she does. Yeah. I think she's got the chops that uh, she did the pilot for Jessica Jones, which is great. So, Oh, she did the pilot. Oh, OK. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That was a good episode. Well, you know, we'll have to see. I don't know anything about her on a personal level, whereas, you know, like when Justin Lin was brought in, everyone just looked at his street cred as being the Fast and the Furious guy, but he's a huge Trekkie on a personal level, and that showed through. I, I don't know Clarkson's background from that standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit, my only concern is that she's 99% primarily a TV director, because like you just said, Derek, when they announced Lin, I was like, ah, Fast and the Furious, and then I remember the first trailer for Star Trek Beyond. I was joking with a buddy. I was like, this literally looks like Star Trek and the Furious. <laughs> because the trailer was so poorly cut. And they just showed like literally the worst parts. So I judged him pre in advance. And maybe I'm doing the same. But, you know, I, I remember when they announced Abrams as the director for the new 2009 Trek. And I even back then, I was like, nah, I don't know if I'm too excited for Abrams. And 09 Trek was good. I wouldn't say it was great. But... I will say I enjoyed Star Trek Beyond, which was a director I didn't really trust more than I trusted, more than I liked it more than I liked the 09 Trek, which Abrams was kind of a household name. Mm -hmm. But it's like they announced Abrams for Star Wars Episode Nine, and I'm not really excited on that because he's got a different directorial style than Ryan Johnson. And Ryan Johnson undid a bunch of stuff that Abrams did. So, you know, I mean, it's just take a chance on a director. I actually would almost would have reversed the two. Give her the side movie of Trek where, like you guys are just pointing out, a lot of the stuff she did on TV was 
character driven stories. You know, you have Jessica Jones, who's obviously a very dominant actress on screen or character on screen, excuse me. With Trek, you don't really get a lot of character driven movies. You get a lot of story driven movies. I mean, we, don't get me wrong, you got the Wrath of Khans in there, but let's be honest, the Abrams films weren't really character driven. It was gigantic blue space beam or gigantic blue ship. Well, maybe maybe that's what we need, you know, because Star Trek, a lot of people, myself included, have always believed that Star Trek belongs more on television than it does on the big screen. So maybe you need a TV director to bring that scope into place. And that's entirely possible. You might be you might be 100 percent accurate on that. And I am looking forward to the fact that I think she will be one of the few directors that doesn't just fall back on gigantic blue space beam. Because it's so easy to fall into that trope, and it's a trope for a reason, because Marvel falls into it all the time. Mm -hmm. Trek was falling into it all the time. And we joked about it a couple episodes ago. There's always a bigger ship. And maybe she won't do that. Maybe she will rely on an actual villain that has actual motive and an actual reason to do what they're doing. Yeah, also she doesn't have the bad habits of your standard AAA blockbuster directors that you know, are obsessed with lens flare or are obsessed with car chases or are obsessed with like the biggest thing and the biggest explosion. It's like, that's, it's, it's good to have someone who is, is testing those waters for the first time because they have restraint. And that's why I kind of was saying, I wish they would given her the side movie. Cause we, the three of us have been joking about this for almost six months. Now we want to see a star Trek heist film. Like, where their goal isn't to save the universe, it's to break into the central bank of Frankenar or something. <laughs> is let her do something like that, where it's all the char- Ocean's Eleven style. It's all character driven, and the story is created by the characters, which is what she has done on TV. Well, and I said that, and then I saw Avengers and saw the trailer for Solo, and it looks like a, a big part of that is going to be some kind of space heist. So it's like, meh, maybe well, they don't need to do it. Yeah. So it yeah. sounds like there's going to be a uh, a big IP space heist movie, so it might not be the time for that with Trek. Yeah, but the difference is when they make Solo, you know the space heist is going to be stopped by Boba Fett, and they're going to transport an eight-year-old Leia at some point. Oh, please no. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> the royal family of Alderaan needs transport. Han Solo can do it. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Let's Jeremy, give you got a point. You got a point, though. They're making another famous Star Trek... or space-based heist movie so it probably won't happen maybe she'll make a spy movie we were joking about that a few episodes ago too oh that'd mm-hmm. be cool there are a lot of genres they could touch yes yes there are so you guys want to move on to our main topic then we spent about almost 20 minutes on news well sure, how let's... about we transition from the first female director of star trek to maybe the most important secondary female character in the original series history with city on the edge of forever no 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 we gotta we gotta close with that we if we close with this bad episode that there's nothing to talk about it'll just like peter out do you want to op- <laughs> you want to open up with the alternative factor i mean we we gotta get it out of the way before we can talk about the good one well it's only gonna take 10 minutes five minutes yeah so let's let's just flush this turd <laughs> all right very well. So, The Alternative Factor, episode 20 of the original series, first aired in March of 1967. It takes place in the year 2267, and man, is this a bad episode. Yeah, nothing happens. 
Well, it's so bad that the main actor that was supposed to be the not even villain, but the counterpoint, the main person dropped out a day before shooting. The guy who was going to play Lazarus? Yeah, the guy that played La- was going to play Lazarus originally dropped out literally like 12 hours before principal shooting started. Smart man. Wow. Did he have a reason? I don't know if they ever announced a reason. It just... He, maybe he finally read the script again. He's like, what in the hell? Or did they show him the facial hair he was going to wear? <laughs> you mean discount Klingon facial hair from the original series? It was like, it was racist, but I didn't know what race it was racist against. It was like, almost like a like a Fu Manchu. But it's just like, wispy, like, broom no, bristles. Right. It's, it's, it's like stereo, it's like somebody was watching a historical drama at the time, and it's like, hmm. This is Central Asian step archer facial hair. Let's use this in Star Trek, and it's going to blend in just fine. And it changed a little bit, like one version of him versus the other version of him. One had thicker facial hair than the other. Yeah, and they, oh, it's almost like you can almost watch what they're filming as they realize they almost have no idea how to do what they're trying, what the story was. Yeah. It's like they made a story too complex for what they could do. And so the end result was complete and utter nothing. Well, they never quite explain why they continuously trade places. Or why they created a magnetic disturbance that could be felt in every quadrant of the galaxy. Right. See, that's that's the thing that gets really confusing about this, is that I'm not sure how these two even found out about each other. I don't well, think they even know. He kind of <laughs> one the the non scarred Lazarus near the end kind of breaks it down for Kirk on the planet surface, and he's basically like, "So we found out that you can travel between times and dimensions and all this stuff, uh, and then then we ran into this guy who was just a dick and was obsessed with him being the only one." Which is kind of the the premise of the uh, the Jet Li movie, The One. Uh, so he went and tried to kill all of his other selves, but somehow that has to do with antimatter, which somehow has to do with dilithium crystals. Well, right. So if the idea that if the two Lazaruses come in contact with each other, all of existence is destroyed, then how could one Lazarus even know the other one is after him? Well, also, there's this concept of the the bad Lazarus killing the planet that they're on and this being the end of time for them, but them specifically. But then there's these, like, magnetic ramifications and the planet winking in and out of existence. Well, and and that's the problem you you have with plots like this, though, is two identical characters from different universes or whatever. If they meet, they could end the universe. But like you just said, Jeremy, the one guy's almost like hunting the other one. Yeah, But if, if they're hunting each other or whatever, and they know that meeting each other is going to end the universe, then it's going to end the universe for the hunter as well. So there's really no reason for them to want to even be close to each other, unless the other guy's just completely insane, which kind of, not really. He doesn't seem psychopathic insane. He just seems kind of, I don't know, dumb. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's the Spock has a couple of really great quotes in this episode. Uh, one I'll mention later because it's one of my my favorite Spock lines. Um, but he does have the line that madness has no purpose or reason, 
but it may have a goal. So they've already stamped, you know, injured Lazarus as being an insane or unstable person. And I will admit, the older I get, when I'm watching an episode like this and I hear the name Lazarus, I always think of the, you know, the mythical reference of coming back from the dead. But obviously that has no implications on this episode. It's just somebody saw the name Lazarus and liked it. It's got a Z in it, so it's good for an alien. It's, it's got a Z in it, so it's good for an alien. And you know what? It's good for Star Trek. And they didn't have to glue anything to his head. That's true. He's just totally human looking. They had to glue that wispy doll hair to his face. That's fair. Look, he's trying, Jeremy, okay? It's 40 years of not shaving. Give him a break. <laughs> he can just grow six individual hairs very long. We all can't be Derek <laughs> and shave and then wake up and sneeze and have a beard. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Um, now, this episode does do something interesting. We make this joke a lot where, like, something bad will happen. And, of course, the Enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant. Uh, but this time, the Admiral straight up goes, actually, you know what? We're just going to get everybody the hell out of there. Good luck, Kirk. <laughs> it was also interesting that he wasn't an Admiral. They referred to him as Commandant. Oh, right. Yeah, Commodore. Yeah, my, or Commodore. my mistake. Yeah. That was a very common thing in the original series. For for other non-admiral, high-ranking people, yeah. Yeah, it seems like past the original series, a high-ranking Starfleet officer is always an admiral. Yes, yeah. There's some ambassadors from time to time. Yeah. Right? Like Ambassador Spock or Sarek. But in the original series, they had Commodores quite a bit. Hmm. So, you know. so here's, a, here's a trivia question for you guys on Star Trek really quick. Okay. Is this Star Trek quote or Marvel quote? He's death. He's anti-life. He lives to destroy. Oh, man. When I heard that I, in this episode, I laughed so hard. Yeah. It's literally like it's it's almost like somebody was reading a comic book when they were writing the script and like, you know, what, just put it in there. Nobody's going to read this or watch this anyways. Just, it, re just it reminded me of DC and the the anti-life equation. You know, like it's just <laughs> it is so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I mean, this was the '60s, right? I don't remember which franchise came up with this term first, but it's still equally ridiculous. <laughs> and you know, you know what I love is two years after this episode, they're creating you know 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> if you think about it like that, you're like, holy crap! But anyways. <laughs> so the alternative factor did, did it have any redeeming qualities yes um it actually had a it had a little more diversity to the crew than you normally see the other characters that were brought in as kind of one-off characters whether they were extras in the background or like the lieutenant masters uh, they were just more diverse than you tended to see so that was kind of cool no, that's a good point. I mean, and they had uh, more cultural and ethnic diversity. And I think Scotty's not in this episode, right? There's a new engineer. Um, Scotty's not in it, and Sulu's not in it. Yeah, yeah there was just that right. woman and the man who were working on the the Energizer that they said burnt out. Yeah, they use the Energizers a lot. And they keep breaking. They break <laughs> all the time. Yeah, they should get Duracell. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and for anyone wondering, no, Chekhov was not in it either because he wasn't actually really a part of the show at this point. Um, yeah, he it's, show it's, up? 
season two. So when it becomes a nuclear vessel. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but everybody else, you know, is there, of course. Um, Uhura has a bit of a role, nothing too crazy. Nurse Chapel is not in it. It's really just, it's really a Kirk and Spock episode more than anything. It's a Lazarus and Lazarus episode. It is a Lazarus and Lazarus episode. That's true, too. It, I mean, that's the thing. Like like you said, Jeremy, not a lot happens. You get to see this tiny spaceship, which there's two of because each Lazarus has their own. But it's a time ship that also can go between universes. Um, and it's, it's a little weird because it's a parallel universe, but it's not like it's not like the mirror universe or anything like that. It's the anti-universe, which is, I guess, a specific parallel universe. Um, did yeah. anybody, though, when the two like whenever they would go through the corridor, so to speak, um, anybody else kind of think of Star Trek five? Well, because of the, the the colorization and everything, yeah. the special effect was almost identical. Yeah, it, well, it, I think it might have been the exact same as special effect, actually. Well, that's, that's a shame because <laughs> like twenty years earlier, <laughs> 20, twenty years later, somebody was making Star Trek Five. Shatner's like, you know, I remember that special effect we use on Alternative Factor. <laughs> We're going to use that. Everyone's favorite episode. Let's call that back up. <laughs> you got to admit, Spock was probably like, or uh, Spock. Leonard Nimoy was like, Bill, are you are you sure that that episode didn't do so well? Yeah, yeah, that's it, it. Just reminded me of that when the two Lazaruses get together and they're like fighting with each other. All I could think of was like Cybok, you know, about share your pain, share it with me. You know, just the weird negative lightning effects. <laughs> well, it's like you, but you know, the universe shifts right or in combines. But just, so again, it's not an alternate universe; it's like a duplicate anti-universe. Shouldn't I'm, I'm, I'm giving never, never mind. I'm giving alternative factor too much credit. Well, the the corridor that they meet in apparently is like a DMZ, where antimatter and regular matter are just they're cool. They're cool with each other. That doesn't make sense to me, but okay. <laughs> None of this episode made sense. It's it's all bad, non fleshed out ideas clashing with each other, all surrounding just and. Though I think to cap off just how lame this episode was, when he gets when Kirk fights uh like Bad Lazarus and Bad Lazarus just kind of picks him up in this bear hug and it's just this super awkward tussle that looks like they're they're having a a bro moment that went awry. It's just like is this over yet? <laughs> now it does have one of my favorite spot quotes, which is. I fail to comprehend your indignation, sir. I've simply made the logical deduction that you are a liar. And I love that line so much. Because, you know, I mean, that's, that's Spock's thing, right? There's no emotion involved. You're, you're, you're just, you're lying logically. So I don't understand why you take offense to that. It's just his conclusion based on the facts. Exactly. It's almost yeah. as if some people take great offense when you call them out for lying. True. <laughs> The guy that was originally going to play uh, Lazarus was John Drew Barrymore, the father of no Drew Barrymore. <laughs> That's so, so he named crazy. his daughter after his own middle name. I thought you were going to say like John Drew Barrymore, the father of Gwyneth Paltrow or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been twist. You know, it's Hollywood. It's possible. It's from an alternate universe. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But yeah, he so he's the father of Drew Barrymore. Huh. Okay. Well, he made the right call. 
Uh, maybe and again, maybe we don't know what happened. I mean, they filed a grievance because he didn't show up, but maybe he was reading the script again and he was like, "This just doesn't make sense." And maybe you know the Barrymore family's been around forever, and maybe he's like, "I don't want my name associated with the alternative factor when I'm just a guest star." Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if they went to that depth. Maybe he just got drunk and didn't show up. It's who knows. <laughs> but speaking of drunk and showing up. Can we move on beyond the alternative factor now? <laughs> Please, yes. yes. I'm going to rate it as a 1 out of a 1 to 10. It seems Are generous. we rating? Oh, I, man. Just, I just am because it's the alternative factor and it deserves a 1. I'm not going to give it that low. I'll, gi- I'll give it a 2. I think there are worse episodes. Do we have to watch those? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, ha- we'll have to wait and see. Oh, God. Yeah, that was not a fun one. That was just kind of like, ugh. What is this? When is this Wait, over? Which is worse, Code of Honor or the Alternative Factor? See, I think Code of Honor is worse. Which one was Code of Honor? The super racist one in TNG. Yeah, I haven't watched season one of Next Generation probably since it aired in like '89. I'm actually with I'm with Derek. I agree. Code of Honor is worse than the Alternative Factor. Yeah. All right. Star Star Trek TNG premiered in September of 1987. All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> 20 years after the original series right that was 20 years yeah i always had a deep right. aversion to the uniforms that had the single colored stripe on the the top black part around their neck hole look that, they got rid of those in season three but i agree with you they're weird but yeah any anytime i saw one of those pop up i'm like nope sorry whatever channel this is i'm watching something else fair enough Alright, so The City on the Edge of Forever. This is episode 28 of the original series. So good. April 1967. Uh, uh, So, what's interesting about this on the Blu-rays is that they're actually uh, next to each other. They are on Netflix, too. These are, they're they're back-to-back. And that, regarded as how... one of the top five Star Trek episodes of all series of all time. Jeremy, were you saying it's like that on Netflix too? Yeah, it's Alternative Factor and then this. Okay, so I guess the Blu-ray and, and Netflix have them in the same order. They were not aired in that order though. So it's a little confusing. But uh, but yeah, so it is. It, uh, Greg, you're right. This is wildly considered to be the best episode of star trek ever made i mean every poll i've been researching it's always on that top five top three list and there are plenty of polls that show it as like top like number one the only other ones i consistently see on there are like trouble with tribbles and best of both worlds and inner light Mm -hmm. those are the only episodes i continually see over and over and over again measure of a man is a is usually up up yeah, measure of a man. Oh, it's so good. But anyways, yeah. City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, so this is a very interesting episode because it's it's basically two completely separate stories that merge together towards the end, right? So you've got the Kirk and Spock story, and then you have the McCoy story, and it's it shows some just intense, crazy acting by DeForest Kelly. Oh, by everybody. And, well, yeah. I mean, you have Kirk, who's, you know, quickly falling in love, and Spock, who's just really frustrated to be in 1930s (laughs) United States. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
but this one, there's just so much to, to look into and unpack in this episode. So where do you guys want to start? Um, let's just start at the beginning with how McCoy got into this crazy situation. Sure. So he accidentally shoots himself up with a very powerful drug, far more than he should take, and it makes him kind of go mad, and he beams off the ship. Wait, wait, kind of go mad? <laughs> Assassins, well, I, murderers! I say kind of because, like, he he talks to that one dude just fine in the streets. Well, yeah, he shakes it off eventually, but he's he's certainly crazy. Here's a question for the two of you. So after he shoots himself up and he gets to the transporter room, he judo chops the transporter chief like twice. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Did we ever see the transporter chief again? I can't remember. Are you thinking Bones killed him? <laughs> oh. I'm just asking the question. Did Bones kill somebody? And they're like, it's Bones. It's okay. He didn't mean it. Let's just shuffle that one under the rug. <laughs> that is rough. Um, Actually, you know what? You do get to see him again. Ah. Wow, you get to see him. He's in the Wrath of Khan, guys. The transporter chief? Yeah, Lieutenant Kyle. He uh, so he is <laughs> in Kyle. eleven. He's in eleven episodes of the original series, and he's also in the Wrath of Khan. How great is that? Who does he know in the production crew? Uh, check this out in Star Trek: New Voyages Phase Two. He's a captain. He makes it to captain. What the hell? Who? Okay, he what? Well, that's that's a fan production, but still, just, just saying. Look, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I'm not in any of these Star Trek fan productions. <laughs> well, you're not well, Commander Kyle. You're I'm not. not Commander- I am not Commander Kyle. You're right. It's Lieutenant Kyle oh. at this particular point, but uh, well, actually, right now he's Transporter Chief. He becomes Lieutenant Kyle in the Wrath of Khan. Look, you know what? We're going to find this man. And Jeremy, you moved away, but Derek, we're going to create Star Trek Kansas City. <laughs> Oh man! The USS, right. Topeka, the USS Topeka. I like it. I it's, like it. It's already been canceled. It's already been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> You're already being um, investigated for fraud. Right yeah, here we go. But uh, but yeah, so he survives. Sorry. Okay. But okay, so McCoy gets McCoy beams down, and there's like well, it wasn't like a time disruption, but it was like a, what a spatial distortion that hits the Enterprise around the same time. Well, yeah, is that that's caused by the portal? Yeah, there's these time waves, these temporal waves that are going throughout the system emanating from the planet. And it's caused by the Guardian. Who just happens to be one. Yeah, the Guardian in the Edge of Forever. No, Guardian of Forever, right? The Guardian of Forever, yeah. Which I know I recognized immediately because it's the portal that you get objects from in Star Trek timelines. Uh, yeah, I guess it is. That's that's a good point. I had not really thought about that. So wait, but... it's in Star Trek Timelines? I know it was in Star Trek Online as well. Yes. Yeah, it's like whenever you get a random loot box, it's you're, you're going to the time portal and pulling things out of time. They do go back to the Guardian of Forever in an episode of the animated series. <laughs> and it's a, in a few books, I think, and even some comics. Because he keeps yeah, coming back again me. and again. It does seem like a convenient thing to just kind of leave behind unguarded. It's like in case well, we ever need to the just completely. Stories is everybody like the Star Trek fans after like five or ten years are like, who in the hell built this thing? It's like because they, it's like you know, I've been around since before there was even a, a your star or your sun or whatever. 
I've been here waiting. So it's like, is it five billion years old? Six billion years old? Just chilling. Just hanging waiting out. Waiting for a question. Waiting for one errant Borg to find me and take over all of history. <laughs> yeah, man. I certainly hope uh, the Borg never find out about that planet. Well, it's also interesting that this portal in the depths of space flips through specifically Earth's history. Well, it did that on purpose. Just for bones? Well, basically, yeah. So, because it, it explains it for Kirk that, like, here, take a look at your past or, like, however it framed it. Um, so it basically knows who you are and where you're from and shows you your past. But that would have been not Kirk's past. Well, Kirk I think and Bones are both from Earth. I think it was just referencing your. I I know you're a human, so I'm going to yeah. show you human history. Mm. It's just Earth history. That's all. And they're both from Earth. They're both from the United States. Yep. Well, Kirk's you know. from Iowa. Is that really the United States? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, Kirk sorry. is from Iowa. Sorry, uh, the forget. one or two fans Sh- from Iowa. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> I forget where Bones is from, but uh, yeah. So yeah, so Bones goes down there. Kirk and Spock have to go with them. Now, the the one funny thing here is that so they they send down a landing party that consists of Kirk, Spock, Uhura, Scotty, and of course some red shirts who do not die. By the way, um, and they're all protected from the time change, I guess, because of their proximity to the Guardian. Mm-hmm. So Earth never made an enterprise never created a starfleet the way we know it that type of thing because one woman survived and somehow that impacted world war ii it's the butterfly effect man her name was susan butterfly susan butterfly yes exactly uh not exactly edith keeler and the premise is interesting the premise is that she she is a peaceful person who wants everyone to work together in harmony and help each other out. She runs the mission that Kirk and Spock stay at where Bones ends up. And really, she doesn't ask for much in return other than be a decent human being. And if you're able to help out, then you know, you'll even get paid for it. And the concept here is that her idea of wanting peace worked so well that it delayed the United States entering World War II. And by then... Germany, the Nazi party in Germany, was able to come up with the atomic bomb first and win the war. And it's an interesting take on on peace and that peace might be a good thing at certain times and at other times, maybe, maybe not. Well, it's also interesting that uh, that kind of the Axis powers takeover was a big part of uh, the last season of Enterprise, too. Mm hmm. Well, it's also theorized, and I don't remember if it's ever determined in canon or not, but it was theorized that the Mirror Universe basically split off from our universe at that point in time. The Nazis winning World War II. Mm. Yeah, I've read the same thing, and that part of that theory was the alternate timeline where Edith Keeler doesn't die. And it's because of her the Nazis win, what all that stuff. So I think it's kind of a fun theory to mess around with, and I actually got to give him credit. Of all the alternate histories of World War II that I think we've all read dozens of, or seen dozens of, it's one of the more unique. Usually they all rest around the same trope of, oh, somebody goes back in time to the 1920s and kills Hitler. And the Soviets do something crazy and blah, blah, blah. 
And this one's then just get... some hippie lady kept us out of World yeah. War II too yeah. long. Exactly. She was peaceful. She was she's like a Quaker and kept us out of the war because of A, B, and C. I'm like, that's kind of an alternate history people don't usually talk about. Yeah, subtle. It is really interesting, right? Because everyone goes for the obvious stuff. It's always the very big, obvious stuff. And this is just such a small thing that it's the idea of wanting peace that could have led to even more destruction. You know, it, it kind of takes the whole premise of what the Federation is out to do and kind of turns it on its head. Well, it's also interesting that she forces her, like, mission soup kitchen kind of patrons to listen to her rant about, like, sci-fi nonsense. Because <laughs> they're just like... Wait, you'll you'll have to pay for this meal. Listen to old wackadoo over here, and then she starts talking about spaceships and walking on the moon and all this stuff. It's like, oh, okay, that's an interesting take. She she did a good job though, because it felt like it wasn't rehearsed at all. Like she just was making it up as she went. Yes. Yeah. Like I wonder was she even given lines for that particular scene? That's like Pat Oswalt's filibuster speech in Parks and Rec. They just let her go off for a little <laughs> while. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes, I like it. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see just them kind of deal with her. And they're like, it, and they lied to the cops, and and they were running around all over town, stealing clothes and and getting into shenanigans and nerve pinching a, a police officer. Uh, but then, like, as soon as they were confronted with this woman that they had snuck into her basement to change clothes and and get warm. They they lied to her once. She said, I know you're lying to me. Try again. And then they were just like, all right, we're, every word we say to you is going to be the truth in some regard. And Kirk just kind of like selectively cut out the things that he didn't want to say, but everything he said to her was honest, which is an interesting kind of like, like they handcuffed them as far as what kind of stories they could tell about what fantastical world they came from but you know he he never lied and she was cool with it yeah i, th- I think you're right um it's it's it, she's a very interesting character because she's she's strong obviously she's intelligent she's very trusting she wants to see the good in everyone and i think that makes it even harder for for kirk because you know th- this episode Go, goes against the trope that you know Kirk is this this womanizer because he's really not when you watch Star Trek it's one of those things that people just think about right the whole you know beam me up Scotty a line that's never actually said or you know you know I am you know, um, you know Luke I am your father a line that was never that's not the right line right like we have these things that we perpetuate as a culture this shows that he's not a womanizer. He falls in love with a highly intelligent, caring, driven person and has to stop himself from saving her life. Uh, that moment was rough. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just rewatched it again today and it's it's just as rough now as when it first aired. And, and Derek, you're, you're kind of joking about this episode being almost like a trope killer. And we were commenting earlier that the the two or three red shirts that go down with them don't die. That's, yes! an, that's another trope from the original series. There's not actually, it's like what, 20 red shirts or whatever that die throughout the whole series, which is, it's like less than like Dr. Crusher's patients on next generation. Yeah, it's I mean, minimal. 
It's minimal. It's also a percentage thing. If you work out the percentages, you actually have a much better chance of dying. I think if you're if you're a command officer, because there's a there, the thing is there's so many red shirts. All of the engineers are red shirts. All the security officers are red shirts. You know, and so they're dying at a much lower rate than the others. Um, I also thought this one was really interesting that they um, they group up outside of the portal and uh, Spock calculates when they need to jump into this just like flip book of, of images of history to when they would land at the same time that Bones went in. And his plan for Uhura and uh, was it who else went down? Scotty, Scotty Uhura Scotty. and somebody else. It was just red shirts. I thought it was actual cast. No, it was Uhura, Scotty, Kirk, Spock, and then Red Shirts. Okay. But his plan for them was just like, jump in whenever, see what happens. It's like, <laughs> it's like we're going to go in. If you don't, if you don't, you know, see what happens to us, just jump into the 50s or something and see, see what you can make of it. It's like, okay. Good prime directive well, was, there. Well, no. Well, they'd already ruined the prime directive, though, by changing time, right? Yeah. So the prime directive no longer applied. But I get the idea. It's like, look. None of us really exist anymore. So you can either stay on this planet not existing until you die, or you can try and fix the timeline again. Or they could all go at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been difficult to coordinate. <laughs> I mean, it's, it wasn't super scientific. He was just like, jump now, and then they jumped. <laughs> It reminded me, I, I watched the DS9 episode where somebody gets teleported back in time, and it's just uh, uh, Nana Visitor, what is her character's name? Kira. Oh, Kira, Kira, yeah. Kira Norris. It's just like Kira and Odo just like doing quick quick hops back in time to like the 60s, just on, and it's, it's just like this episode where it's just on some street corner in New York, and they just kind of look around for a second and just go like, uh, is... Is, is anybody here? Uh, no. Okay. Let's let's get out of here. It's like real real precise uh, search search patterns for searching all of time for one guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. It was. It's one of those things where you know they 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 kind of fall into it, right? Like Spock's like, oh, good heavens, I could have been recording this entire time. Yeah. You know, and he turns the tricorder on, kind of thing. Um, it probably would have been easier if they were just like, oh, it's a good thing the tricorder has been running. They, that would have been fine, I think. They worked, they worked really hard to show us the limitations of their own technology that they they don't have to limit it for us. It's the future. Yeah. You know? Well, I do like that Spock's whole goal, though, is he has to recreate some of this circuitry using 1930s technology, really 1920s technology, because it is 1930. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't go so well. I need vacuum tubes for my hobby. <laughs> it's like, okay, Spock, calm down. <laughs> Which, now that you think about it, when uh, when Star Trek is doing the Times Arrow episodes, yes. Data is doing the exact same thing as Spock. But earlier, because he's in like the 1890s or something like that. <laughs> yep, but he's still finding vacuum tubes. Yeah. I, I made that exact comparison. So I watched the the episode uh, with uh, with Ray, and she she and I were kind of talking about it back and forth. And I mentioned that like they get to do this again. Data does this, but he actually does it better than Spock, even farther in the past. <laughs> so another fun thing about City on the Edge of Forever is 
the modern airing order of these episodes, and I know the three of us have talked about how the airing episodes back in the day was all jacked up chronology-wise. This episode is sandwiched among two of the worst episodes in Star Trek history. Operation Annihilate. (laughs) Operation Annihilate and Alternative Factor. Was Operation Annihilate a Doctor Who crossover? (laughs) Well, it might be. (laughs) You're, You're not entirely wrong. Oh, man, that is so funny. You know, that one didn't make our list, though. We're actually not going to be watching Operation Annihilate, which is super disappointing. Not really. Nobody should be watching Operation Annihilate. But you should be watching City on the Edge of Forever. What's amazing is they made these episodes, right? And the season ends one episode after this with Operation Annihilate. They went out on that rather than this. Yeah, it's... It's surprising because even the cast and crew and all the behind the scenes stuff talk about they universally love City on the Edge of Forever. It's like the cast and crew and they're like, what was your favorite film, your episode to work on? And it's always City on the Edge of Forever or A Mock Time or The Devil in the Dark. It's like the same three, four, five episodes they keep saying. And City on the Edge of Forever is always number one. I love a good Trek time travel episode. They're always the best. Well, especially when it's done well. And I, the I like Gabriel because... Bell episode of DS9 kind of reminded me of that too, where it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. we have to we have to let someone die to preserve history, but we don't want to. But this had the addition of it being a love interest, which made it all the more impactful. It's it's a pretty great Kirk episode. It really is. It shows a lot of his true character. It shows his you know how suave he is and how personable it is everything that i think a person would need to become a good captain is showcased for him in this episode well and like so i've i've been hesitant my whole life to watch the original series because i always just had kind of the impression that it was it was too campy or i just wouldn't get into it or it would it would be too too silly and not not Trek enough for me in my definition of what, what Trek is, but just that, I mean, this whole episode was amazing, but that one line delivery at the very end where they're just like, what should we do captain? And he's just, there's the pause and it looks at him and he just goes like, let's get the hell out of here. Just like so much frustration, so much sadness. There's just like volumes and volumes spoken in that one in the subtext of that one line of dialogue it's just so good so so good that's well said man yeah i I think you're absolutely right i think this if you want to show somebody who is james t kirk i think you show them this episode yeah you show them this episode and rathacon because this is it. This is everything. I mean, think about the you know, calm under intense pressure in a horrible situation. You know, it's this is the Kobayashi Maru right here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know? The un- unwinnable circumstance that you you try and cheat, you catch her, she's falling down some stairs, but you know, time's time's got to work its way out and and kill this woman. But just every every aspect of it, when the chips are down and you're pressed against the wall, I mean, they have no way of knowing where McCoy is in the world, let alone in time. They don't know what's going to happen, how, you know, just de- determining that she is the one who has to live or die. That in itself was a major triumph to determine. And to not fall into a state of, of, of 
failure and depression and feeling like there's just there's no way out of it he's able to focus use all the skills that he and spock have at their their disposal and come up with a solution as sad as it might be the solution of hey a car is coming good (laughs) we we did it but they had to figure it out you know they had to determine that's what it was now here is where things start to get really interesting this is my favorite thing. Like I love time travel stuff so much. Not just Star Trek. I just love time travel. So she has to get killed in this car accident. If none of them go back in time, is she on that street? Because she's only out there because she's going to the movies with Kirk. And she only goes back because Bones comes through the door. Oh, I see what you're saying. So did they inadvertently create... Remember the time crisis? You've created the paradox. <laughs> I mean, they created the future that they needed. Well, there was right? it's Spock- that, it's them going back in time that sets everything right for them to be able to go back in time. Well, Spock never says that she died in a car accident. Yes, he does. Does he? Yeah, I thought he he saw what it was, but he wouldn't tell Kirk because he because Kirk didn't want to know. I'm fairly certain that they mentioned that it's a car car rack of some kind. Because that was that was right after his computer exploded and his computer exploded in the process of him finding out what happened to her. And then they go out into the stairway and she almost dies falling down the stairs and he catches her. Spock seemed to think that that might have been the way that she was destined to go. Because he definitely so scolded s- Kirk for... Uh, Potentially altering history in that moment. Well, but see, that's the thing, though. So they, they did, though, because she wouldn't have come down those stairs after Kirk if Kirk wasn't there. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's I think Spock's point there is that this could have been our opportunity to be free of it without having to worry about McCoy or anything. Because if she had slipped down the stairs and died, that's it. Everything's over. It doesn't matter where McCoy is anymore. It's it's like that. But I, but I'm, it's like that second pilot. Certain. Spock just wants everyone to die. <laughs> he wants everyone to die. Bloodthirsty. But I am fairly certain that that they said it was a car accident of some type. Uh, we'll have to watch it again. So yeah, we'll have to do it again. But yeah, there's but, so yeah. the the other aspect of this episode, just from a writing standpoint, that I loved, and this is just a good episode overall on on many different fronts. But uh, the part where we're kind of watching Bones shake off his his overdose and and decide that he's gone insane, but in a very logical and kind of process-driven kind of way, just like take the tone of what situation he's in and how it all adds up to him being insane. It's like, oh, he's like, he's becoming sane, but also convincing himself that he's insane at the same time. And it's just like this really interesting kind of conversation with himself that he's having while speaking to other people as he meets them it's just so fascinating for him to just go like oh yeah okay so i'm dead or unconscious or i'm crazy good good to know (laughs) well he's narrowed it down yeah (sighs) well is there anything else you guys want to touch on on this episode as we reach the hour mark it's a great episode. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. Oh yeah, def defo. This is this is Trek, and it's you guys both said it. It's the best 
one of the best examples of the characters and the story and the delivery that Trek can do. And let's be honest, this was in the 60s. They're doing alternate history about changing the world. And they pick literally a random woman that's a soup in a volunteers in a soup kitchen to change history. Yeah. Which even back then wasn't, was not a very common thing to do. Yeah. It's a, it's a strong message. Um, a couple things from a production standpoint that are interesting. Edith Keeler was played by the great Joan Collins, which is, uh, Drew Barrymore's mother. Very cool. (laughs) Kidding. And, uh, right. And uh, the the episode was originally written by Harlan Ellison, <laughs> which is super cool. Uh, for those who truly either love Harlan Ellison's work or this episode or both, which is probably the case, um, IDW put out, I believe it was a four-issue miniseries that was based on his original uh, his original story because it was adapted as a teleplay for the episode. So it's a little bit different. Uh, it's really cool. I, I've read it myself, and so it's a really fun way to see this episode in comic book form in Harlan Ellison's original original format. Um, so that's something out there that you could check out. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for us, guys. Uh, next week, we are going to be taking on two more episodes. We'll be looking at Balance of Terror, which, of course, is another high ranking star trek episode and mud's women which on a personal note is one of my least favorite episodes of star trek uh on a personal note (laughs) what did it do to you i second derek's personal note (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's it's not a very good episode in my opinion everybody who loves harry mud so much uh this is what i used to think about when I thought about Harry Mudd and uh, Rain Wilson, you have done an amazing job of creating a character that is just so much more interesting and compelling to watch. So any final notes guys, before we sign off for the week? Nope. All right. Nope. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, you can find me at the star Trek dude on Twitter and Facebook. Greg, how about you? I am on Yahoo and Twitter at the underscore Bittersteel. And Jeremy? I am on Twitter at Zen Munkin. I'm also, I just launched a new podcast on the network where we are talking about Westworld called Analysis. With new episodes every Sunday. Yes. Very cool. Check that out. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. We'll catch you next week. See you. Later. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.